0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. On those occasions when I've tried unusual food like alligator or snake or squirrel, I'm almost always told the same thing. It's not bad, it tastes kind of like chicken. Well, prior to Acts chapter ten, Peter had never used those words. He had never ventured out into international cuisine. He had never eaten anything other than ceremonially clean kosher Jewish food. And for him, it wasn't just a personal preference; it was a religious conviction. God had said in Leviticus eleven forty-seven, "You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean." between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. And in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, God gives the specific definitions of clean and unclean. A Jewish person could eat a turtle dove. He couldn't eat an ostrich. He could eat, a, eat venison. He couldn't eat rabbit. He could eat lamb chops. He couldn't eat pork chops. Now, why did God make those distinctions Is there something inherently wrong in that meat? Does it cause high cholesterol, cancer, mad cow disease? No. Because otherwise, God wouldn't have turned around later and said, eat up. Why does God make this distinction? Well, He gives us the reason in Leviticus 20.25. He says, you must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals... And between unclean and clean birds, do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground. Those which I have set apart as unclean for you, you are to be holy to me because I the Lord am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. God gave Israel a restrictive diet because he wanted to keep them separate from the nations. He didn't want them to intermingle socially with the nations. And because they had this restrictive diet, they couldn't go down to the Thursday night chili supper in Moab because they had a special diet. It kept them separate from the nations. Why did God want to do that? Well, the number one reason was he wanted to keep Israel pure so that his promises could come through them so that the Messiah could come through Israel and to keep them pure and separate from the nations, he gave them a special diet. But secondly, he wanted to also make them holy, as it said in the verse that we read. God wanted Israel to become holy, and then when he made Israel holy, he wanted them to reach back and bring the Gentiles into that holiness as well. In Isaiah 49.6, God called Israel to be A light to the nations so that God's salvation would reach to the end of the earth. God wanted them to be holy so that they would be a light to the Gentile nations. But that never happened for two reasons. Number one, they compromised. Early on in Israel's history, they compromised the ceremonial laws and intermingled with the Gentiles and adopted their idolatry. And rather than being a light to the nations, they followed the nations and became just like them. Later, after God had weaned them of idolatry by taking them into Babylonian captivity, they had another problem. This was not that they compromised, this was that they externalized. They obeyed the ceremonial laws, but they were external distinctions only. They had the outward sign, but they didn't have the inward reality. There was no inward holiness. And rather than being a light to the nations, they shined the light on the nations and judged them in their self-righteousness and pride. That's the condition Israel was in when Jesus came. They kept the ceremonial laws, and they, they liked them so much, they actually added others. Why did they like the ceremonial laws? Well, self-righteous people always like external laws. They like things you can see. They like things that other people can see. In fact, using one of the ceremonial practices as an illustration, Jesus said to them in Luke 11, you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. And so their focus had become external and they had ignored what really matters, the internal the heart. And so these dietary distinctions between Jew and Gentile intended to draw Israel closer to God so that they could reach out to the Gentiles had actually grown into a huge insurmountable barrier between the two. But an interesting thing happened at the cross. Paul tells us about it in Ephesians 2:14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Jesus took the dividing wall, which is the law, and he shattered it at the cross. The law that kept Jews and Gentiles away from God and the the law that kept Jews and Gentiles away from each other has been broken down so that we are now one in him. And God is no longer calling Jews apart to Himself. He's calling out a group from all nations and tribes and peoples. And within that new entity, the church, we are all one in Jesus Christ. There's no longer a distinction. There's not a distinction in condemnation and there's not a distinction in salvation. There's not a distinction in condemnation. Romans 3.22 says, There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there is no distinction in salvation. Romans 10.12 says, There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God is no longer making distinctions. But in Acts chapter 10, Peter doesn't understand that yet. He's still making distinctions. And he doesn't really have to deal with this issue prior to this because there are no Gentiles in the church. But that's about to change in this chapter. And Peter is going to change in the process. He's about to get a hands-on course in the oneness of the body of Christ. And in order to teach him that, God is going to give him a taste of some Gentile cooking. Now, this event divides into four parts. The preparation, the explanation, the proclamation, and the verification. And I'll warn you ahead of time, we're going to cover a lot of verses today. So, bear with me because we're going to kind of move rapidly. First of all, we see the preparation in verses 9 to 16. In verses 1 to 8, God has already prepared... Cornelius for this encounter. Now he's going to prepare the preacher. Verse 9. And on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. As the three men sent by Cornelius are approaching Joppa, Peter goes up on the roof to pray. Now, that was probably an ideal spot. A flat patio-like roof overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. It was an ideal spot, but it wasn't an ideal time because it says it was the sixth hour. That would be 12 noon. And verse 10 says, And he became hungry and was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. Now, you can't help but like Peter because he's so human. 12 noon was not one of the recognized times for the Jewish people to pray. Some have recomm- uh, or, or, uh, said that he, he, he may have missed the prayer at the third hour, so he was making up for it at the sixth hour. I like that idea, <laughs> personally, uh, that he had missed that one, and so he's making up for it, trying to get it in before lunch, and so he goes up at noon to pray. And then when he gets, begins to pray, he realizes that he's hungry. You ever do that? And all he can think about is Food. And the indication here is that he would have gone down to eat, but it wasn't ready yet. So he's praying, but he's got his ears up, listening for the lunch bell. So this is obviously not going to be real quality prayer time for Peter. And yet what's interesting is the way God meets him at his need. He's hungry, and so God comes with a vision about food. And the end of verse 10 says, he fell into a trance, verse 11, and he beheld the sky opened up and a certain object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air and a voice came to him, arise Peter, kill and eat. Peter sees the sky open up. He sees something that looks like a sheet coming down out of heaven. It's lowered to the ground. It's full of four-footed animals, crawling creatures, and birds. Those are terms used in Genesis chapter 1 to describe the whole gamut of animal life on earth. And so every imaginable animal is on this sheet. Pigs, cows, rabbits, snakes, clean animals, unclean animals. There were probably animals there Peter had never seen before. Now, this is not a table setting with the food already prepared. This is a sheet with the animals there. Peter is told to get up, kill them, cook them, and eat them. Verse 14. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. Peter said, I'm hungry, but I'm not that hungry. Peter preferred hunger to defilement. And so he says... No, Lord. Now, those two words are mutually exclusive. You can say no, and you can say Lord, but you can't say no, Lord. Peter had a habit of telling the Lord no. In Matthew 16, when Jesus described to the disciples how he would suffer and be killed and rise on the third day, Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, No way, Lord. In in John 13, 8, when Jesus came around the table to wash the disciples' feet and he got to Peter, what did Peter say? You will never wash my feet. No, Lord. And now we see Peter, he's saved, spirit-filled. God has been using him, and yet he's still Peter. And like us, he is a work in progress. And so once again, he says, no, Lord. Why? The end of verse 14 tells us. For I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. God tells him, eat. he says, no, Lord, because I've never done that. You know, this phrase at the end of verse 14 really reeks of the language of legalism. Notice, first of all, how proud it is. I have. It's absolute. I have Never. And it's negative. He's talking about all that he has not done. You say, well, why is Peter so adamant about this? He's adamant about this because he knows that he is standing on the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament Scriptures tell him to do this. He says, I've I've never eaten anything unclean and I'm standing on the truth of God's Word. And so a second word comes to him in verse 15. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Yes, the Old Testament scriptures say that those things are unclean, but God has cleansed them. Where? On the cross. And so if you're going to still call them unclean, you're contradicting God. Now what's the message of the sheep coming down? Well, I think there's clearly a twofold message here. Number one, on the negative side, it signifies the abolishing of the Old Testament dietary restrictions. Those laws that kept Jews and Gentiles apart are no longer needed. And so he says Peter could eat anything. Jesus had really already taught Peter that in Mark chapter 7. There in verse 18, he said, Whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. And there we have the little commentary, Thus he declared all foods clean. That was one of the messages here. But the second, on a positive side, was that this symbolized the unity of the body of Christ. The Jews, symbolized by the clean animals... And the Gentiles, symbolized by the unclean animals, were all together as one. Did Peter get the message? Not right away. You would expect, after he was rebuked in verse 15, for him to say, Sorry, Lord. I mean, if you say to do it, then I think I'll start by deep frying a rabbit, and then maybe I'll grill some pork steaks. You would think he would respond that way. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 16. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. It was repeated three times, which tells me that three times Peter did what? He said, "No, Lord." It happened three times, three times he refused, and then we're told that the sheep and the animals went up into the sky, in the vision, but not in the lesson. because this is simply the preparation. That brings us, secondly, to the explanation in verses 17 to 33. Verse 17, Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been, who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. Peter is perplexed, but his problem is not that he needs more information. Because the Lord has already gone over that three times. His problem is the Lord is dealing with something that is deeply ingrained in his convictions. And it has to be dug out. And so God is going to do that in a very practical way. And what he does is, while Peter is perplexed, thinking about this, God's timing is perfect, these three men arrive at the gate. Verse 18. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon... Who was also called Peter was staying there. Now, why are they standing at the gate calling out? Because they're Gentiles. And they were hesitant to come into the court of a Jewish house. And so they stand at the gate and they call out Is Peter, who's called, or Simon, who's called Peter, staying here? Verse 19 And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him Behold, three men are looking for you. But arise, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. The Spirit lets Peter know that this is not a coincidence. God is in control of it all. Three men are at the door. I sent them to you, and I am sending you to go with them. And the key phrase is in verse 20. He says you're to go without misgivings, literally without distinction, You're to go down with these men and you're to go with them without making any kind of distinction. In fact, it's interesting here, the the Spirit doesn't say there are three Gentiles at the gate. He just says there are three men at the gate because He wants Peter to start thinking that way as well. Verse 21, And Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so he invited them in and gave them lodging. It was too late for them to leave for Caesarea that day, and so Peter invited them in to spend the night. And that word lodging means literally to entertain a guest. It's the word used in Hebrews 13, 2, speaking of entertaining angels. And so Peter invites them in and he gives them the red carpet treatment. He's starting to get the message. Verse 23, And on the next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. You know, centuries before this, in this very city of Joppa, another Jew had been told by the Lord to go to the Gentiles. His name was Jonah. And in contrast to Jonah, who rose up and fled, verse 23 says, Peter arose and went. And he took with him some of his Jewish brethren. And later in chapter 11, verse 12, we will find out there were six of them. They would serve as witnesses for the event that it was about to take place. Verse 24, And on the following day he entered Caesarea, now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius had not been idle for these four days. He had been getting together an audience. Verse 25, And when it came about that Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. This is an impressive scene. This takes place outside Cornelius' house, apparently in the open city of Caesarea. And here is this high-ranking Roman officer falling down at the feet of one of the individuals who is in subjection to the Roman government, which I think just expresses his humility and the desire of his heart to know God. You have to remember, Cornelius didn't know anything about Peter. All he knows is that an angel came to him and told him to send for Peter. So if an angel came to tell him to send for Peter, then Peter must rank above angels. So he sees Peter and down on his face he goes in worship. And then the response in verse 26. But Peter raised him up saying, stand up, I too am just a man. When I stopped in Rome on the way to Africa, I had the privilege of going into St. Peter's Basilica. And in St. Peter's Basilica, there is a statue of Peter there. The foot of the statue is, is worn off because there's a long line of people that go by and kiss the foot of that statue. And as I was reading this passage, I thought to myself, I wonder what Peter would say to them today. Well, he would say the same thing he says here. Stand up. I, too, am just a man. And you know, as Peter is saying these words, there's not only a message for Cornelius, there is also a message for Peter because essentially what he's saying to this Gentile man is, we're equal. Which is really the message God is trying to get across to Peter. Stand up. I, too, am just a man. We're equal. And that's the message of this passage. Verse 27. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. Now, underline that little phrase, he entered, because that's one of the most important ones in this passage. Here's where Peter walks into this house of the Gentile, going against all of the Jewish custom that he had been taught in the past. Verse 28, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Peter is starting to grasp the lesson. Two days earlier, he would have called these people unclean. Uh, He might have even used the popular Jewish phrase and called them dogs. But now he says, God has shown me not to call anyone unclean or unholy. Verse 29 That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. And so I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Peter's inside the house and I think in his mind he's thinking he's done pretty well. He has ventured out to actually walk into the house of a Gentile and he's not calling anybody unclean. He's not, he's not using any names. He's not name calling. So he says, here I am. I'm standing in the house of a Gentile. God has taught me to keep my mouth shut and not call you unclean dogs. I think I've come a long way. What more could God want me to do? And so he says, why have you sent for me? And he's about to find out in verse 30. And Cornelius said four days ago to this hour... I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea, and so I, will s- and so I sent to you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then... We are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. He spells it out more clearly in chapter 11 and verse 13 when he says, Send to Joppa and have Simon who is also called Peter brought here and he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved. Now I think at this point the light went off for Peter. Peter realizes at this point God is not simply teaching him that he is not to call the Gentiles unclean. God is teaching him that he is to embrace the Gentiles as brothers. They're going to be saved. They're going to come into the body of Christ. It's not just a matter of him tiptoeing into a Gentile's house. It's a matter of him embracing them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Which brings us to the third point, the proclamation, in verses 34 to 43. And here I just want to highlight seven characteristics about this gospel presentation that Peter gives. Number one, it's non-partial. Verse 34, And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. God shows no partiality. And that is something that Peter is just now coming to understand. He has been under the misconception that God was Jewish. Now he makes the statement that people in every nation are welcome to him. Now don't be confused by verse 35. He's not saying there that everyone who is sincere is accepted by God apart from the gospel. If that were true, then Peter wouldn't need to be here at Cornelius' house. What he's saying is that anyone who comes to God with an honest heart is going to find an open door to the truth about Jesus Christ. The gospel is non-partial. The only distinction God makes is between those who believe on His Son and those who do not. Second point, it's not new. Verse 36, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judah starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Peter says to these Gentiles, you know. So he's not telling them them altogether new information. He's saying, you already know these things. Most people know about the gospel long before they receive it by saving faith. It's not new. Third, it was Christ-centered Notice verse 36 again, and notice what he talks about here. Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Verse 38, you know of Jesus, how God appointed him with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, verse 39, and we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day. You hear somebody preaching the gospel and they're not talking about Jesus. It's not the gospel because the gospel is Christ-centered. It's all about Him. Fourth thing, it's simple. Verse thirty-eight simply says He lived. He went about doing good. Verse thirty-nine says they put Him to death on a cross. Verse forty says God raised Him on the third day. That's the gospel. He lived. He died. He was raised from the dead on the third day. It's that simple. And Peter is not making it simpler for the Gentiles. This is the same gospel he preached to the Jews. It's always simple. Fifth, it's factual. Verse 39, and we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and and Jerusalem. Peter says we the apostles are witnesses of all the things he did Secondly, verse 40, and God raised him on the third day and granted that he should become visible not to all the people but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We witnessed all the things that he did. We also witnessed his resurrection. And then thirdly, he says in verse 43, of him all the prophets bear witness. And so the truth about Jesus Christ is factual because Peter says there are witnesses. The prophets and we the apostles. Sixthly, it's solemn. Verse 42. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. You know, no matter what path a man chooses to go down, we will all end up at the same person. Because we will all one day stand before Jesus Christ. You will either stand before Him as Savior or you will stand before Him as judge. And that makes it a solemn message. Seventh and final final characteristic, it's free. Verse 43... Of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name, everyone who believes in Him has received forgiveness of sins. Who's it available to? Everyone. How do you get it? You believe in His name. What do you get? Forgiveness of sins. The judge has been judged for our sins. And salvation is free to everyone who believes. That's the proclamation. And then fourthly, we see the verification in verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Peter didn't even get finished with his message. They heard the gospel, they believed, and the Holy Spirit fell. See, the moment a person comes to salvation isn't necessarily when they raise their hand in a service or when they respond to an evangelistic invitation. It's when they believe in their heart. Peter's preaching. He's in the process of preaching. He hasn't even gotten to his altar call. And they believe and the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles. And so Peter was interrupted by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 17, Peter was interrupted by the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that? They were there and there was Moses and Elijah and Peter opened his mouth and said, it's good for us to be here. I think we ought to make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And it says, while he was still speaking, a voice came out of the cloud, which was the Father, and said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. In other words, you be quiet And listen to him. He was interrupted by the Father. He was also interrupted by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 16 when he was correcting Jesus' theology about the fact that he was going to suffer and die. Jesus said to him, Get behind me, Satan. Which really gives Peter the dubious distinction of being the only individual who was ever interrupted by all three persons in the Godhead. But this time it's a good interruption. The Holy Spirit can't wait for the altar call and so He interrupts the message by sending the Spirit of God. Verse 45, And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. As on the day of Pentecost, speaking with tongues was a sign of the coming of the Spirit, indicating to Peter and these other Jewish believers that the Gentiles had received the same gift that they had, and that they were part of the same body. And Peter certainly got that point because in verse 46 it says, Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now notice, these Gentiles are not saved by being baptized. They are baptized because they are saved. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit does not eliminate the need for the baptism of water. One is the symbol of the other. These people were baptized with water because they had been baptized with the Spirit. And then notice the last phrase in verse 48. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. And Peter stayed for several days in the house of this Gentile, Cornelius. And I'm sure this is where he got his first taste of Gentile cooking. And I'm sure they had to say it over and over again to him. It's not bad. It tastes a lot like chicken. Now what's the lesson for you and me? Well, it's the same lesson that Peter got. And that is the gospel must be preached to all people. And that's a message that's a lot easier to say amen to than to put into practice in our lives. Because if we're honest about our own lives, we've got some barriers to overcome. Let me suggest three this morning. Number one is the personal barrier. Peter had a personal barrier of prejudice against the Gentiles. He had grown up in a Jewish home. He was taught to hate Gentiles. He he was taught that they were unholy, unclean dogs. And that personal prejudice was a big barrier for him to get over we have to deal with that personal barrier of prejudice as well. Many of us have prejudice against other cultures, against other skin colors, against other social statuses. And those things have been ingrained in us. And they affect our ministry for God. They tend to make us selective. We say, I know the gospel is to go out to all people, but I'm not going to share the gospel with that person unless they come to me and ask me. I know the gospel is to go out to all people, but I'll only share the gospel with them if they're willing to become like me. See, that's not the gospel. Jesus said in the gospel we are to do what? We are to go. And in order to go, we have to overcome that personal barrier of our own prejudice second barrier is a theological barrier. Peter had the theological barrier that kept him from the Gentiles. He, like his fellow Jews, confused the correlation between separation and holiness. They thought the farther you got from sinners, the holier you got. And I'm afraid that some Christians today hold on to that same kind of viewpoint. We're afraid of contact with sinners because we think that somehow we'll get contaminated if we get near them. You see, that's ceremonial law thinking. The truth is that holiness is an internal thing. It's a life that reflects God and and pleases God and avoids sin, but it's also a life that reaches out for the salvation of sinners. It's to be like Jesus, who was holy and yet went where the sinners were. Third barrier is a social barrier. Over ten years after this, Peter was in Antioch eating pork chops with the Gentiles. And some Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem. And in Galatians chapter 2, it says that he stopped eating with the Gentiles and backed away for fear of the Jewish believers. And Paul says on that occasion, I had to oppose Peter to his face. What happened to Peter? Didn't he know better? Yeah, he knew better. But he was swayed by peer pressure. He let what other people thought get in the way of what he knew. God wants us to learn the lesson that Peter was learning here. The gospel is to be preached to all people. And if we're going to do that effectively, we have to overcome the barriers. Personal barrier, prejudice. Theological barrier, God hasn't called me out of the world. He's called me to be in the world, but not of the world. And the social barrier, we have to overcome the concern about what other people think. And then let me just close with two principles about learning God's truth. Number one, it's not acquired in one setting. Verse 16 tells us that Peter got the vision repeated three times, and verse 17 says he was still perplexed. He sat through three services, same sermon, and he still didn't get it. Which tells me that God doesn't always give us spiritual truth in one setting. And I say that because sometimes people come... To a service and they want me as preacher to teach you, exhort you, challenge you make the application so that when you leave here you understand everything and you know exactly what to do that isn't always the way God operates sometimes it may be valuable for you to leave a service scratching your head a little perplexed because God often works in our life by a process of teaching us which is really the second point, that even when we think we've got it, we may not. In verse 34, Peter says, I most certainly understand now. Sounds like he's got it, doesn't it? Ten years later, in the city of Antioch, he doesn't have it anymore. He's lost it. What's the problem with Peter? Number one, he's Peter. He's saved, spirit-filled, used by God, but he's still Peter. Peter. And secondly, learning God's truth is a process. And may God help us to learn this all-important truth. The gospel must be preached to all people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage of Scripture which shows us the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. And Father, we rejoice in that because most of us here today are Gentiles. We are the unclean, unholy dogs who are outside of the covenant people. And Lord, we're thankful, we rejoice today that You included us. And yet, Lord, we find those same characteristics we see in Peter creeping into our hearts often. That we sit within the church and we don't reach out because we've got barriers in our heart. And Father, I I pray today that You would begin to challenge our hearts to break those barriers down so that we might truly reach out in the freedom that your spirit wants to have in our lives and in our church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.